Welcome, everyone, to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I am your co-host, at least for now, Mark Bigney. And with me, as always, is, for now, my co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing? Great, Mark. I'm kind of worried now. Well, I just want to address the rumors. Everyone's been speculating. Oh, have they? It's been rampant, quite frankly. I've been seeing it everywhere on the major media news. And I just want to put to bed the rumors once and for all. We've checked the contracts. We've consulted with the editorial gibbons. We've consulted with the legal gibbons. We've, pr- we've consulted with the producer gibbons. Everyone is unanimous, despite the rumors to the contrary. Tucker Carlson will not be joining the podcast. Oh. He's not going to be replacing one of us, despite the fact that he's a free agent. But, but uh, the, the letters I sent him, that's probably why he quit. <laughs> I promised him a spot. <laughs> yeah, but the Gibbons said that they didn't, they didn't authorize it. Oh. Without the Gibbons' signature, nothing we do is authorized. I they think, keep us on a short leash. I think he's going to be upset. I think he's upset most of the time, he's, to be frank. He's a big board gamer. Anyway. No, he's not. <laughs> we are going to talk about board games this week. We're going to talk about the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, The Aurus. We're going to talk about the games we played last week, the news, and why it doesn't matter. And then our topic for the week, the topic being The Games Must Flow. Walker loves to talk about game flow. He has some thoughts, and I have some thoughts as well. I also have some questions for Walker. We're going to get psychological this week, Walker. I think so. Yeah. So, with that in mind, what did we review last year? Exactly one year ago, we reviewed a game called, a card game called Imperium Classics and Legends. I hate the name so much. It's so bad. It's so So generic. It's not their fault. Okay. It's pretty generic, and it's not their fault that so many other games came out that year with Imperium colon something or Imperium generally. And it's certainly not their fault that Dune Imperium, my least favorite of the Imperium named games, became the dominant game in the hobby sphere, or at least the most popular and one. Twilight Imperium, anyway. Well, Twilight Imperium is bad enough, but yeah. at least that isn't, you know, Imperium colon something. It's true. Or something colon Imperium. So anyway, this is the Civilization-themed deck builder by Nigel Buckle and David Tsertse, published by Osprey. It came in two base game boxes that could be combined as you wished. And I've I've actually talked a lot about it since we initially reviewed it. I released an episode of Sorry Wrong About All the Games You Like Are Bad, almost exclusively about Civilization games theming, and talking about how I felt that the Imperium games did Civilization theming much, much better than any, any others. Because as opposed to your traditional Sid Meier mold, where Alexander would be leading you for 3,000 years, here in Imperium Classics, you would have Alexander the Great show up and do something once, and then go into your history, and maybe the fact that he had done something in your history would be relevant for other scoring cards or not, but you didn't have these immortal god kings and other details like that I very much appreciated. Anyway, the gameplay is great. There's a wonderful scoring app. Uh, It's opinions differ on how good it is multiplayer. I still enjoy it for three with three players or four if they all know what they're doing, which I've done once. Downtime, though, is pretty significant <laughs> on the topic of game flow. Uh, Walker, you really haven't expressed any interest since we reviewed it. No, it really is a game that you really need to play a lot. And like, like you sort of said there, it is more of a two-player game, and that sort of genre is very crowded. At well, yes, for us. Well, by virtue of the downtime, the solo play I think is wonderful, except for the scoring, which again, there's a lovely little augmented reality scoring app, which takes out a lot of the pain therein. No, but like you said, as for Civ games, it does so much more that the other ones do not. It's not as though you have one special ability, like oh, you know, you your troops have 
two strength. Right, right, exactly. It's not as though you start in a different part. Oh, look, you're the Romans, so you start in Rome. That, that makes you the Romans, right? <laughs> it's your your entire deck is different, and it you know it all sort of incorporates and gives you that whole feeling and the fact that you have a history pile. Yep. and you know all of these things make give you this feel of of a serious, and it's just in cards. That's yes, cheap, tons of variety. And I think it's one that I think eventually we will go back to. Well, it is the case that next year, I was hoping it was going to come this year, but it's going to come next year. There's going to be Imperium colon Horizons, 14 new civilizations. This is a new expand alone. And there are going to be 45-ish reprinted cards for the base game. And uh, it's, it's my most, honestly, I think it's my most anticipated release. Of the confirmed releases so far, certainly independent of any uh, crowdfunding, I really, really, I was, I was nervous because David Circe is kind of hit or miss for me as a designer, especially when it comes to a lot of his solo work. But this is, I think, some of his best work, all told, barring none. And I think this is probably some of the best solo work that he's done as well. And I'm just a, a, a big, big fan of Imperium Classics and Imperium Legends, and I can't wait to see what Horizons does. Especially since one of the one of the many great things about Imperium Classics and Legends was it was vastly more uh, pain cultural than a lot of traditional Civ games. Like even Mosaic, which we really like, is just the standard, boring, here's the Mediterranean again. Africa? What? Where? <laughs> like, yeah, you've got the Carthaginians and the Egyptians, but they didn't view themselves traditionally as, as African civilizations in the same way that some of these other civilizations did. Anyhow, I adore Imperium. I, I don't know what to refer to the game as, though. <laughs> just Imperium. Just Imperium? But yeah. that's so... Im- okay, it, in this context, people will know, but in general, Imperium is... <laughs> I love Imperium. Looking forward to more. That's what we reviewed a year ago in my collection, apt to stay. I even bought a custom insert for it, so there you go. Of course, Horizon's is going to ruin that. Oh, well. <laughs> so, Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, we got to the table Xenoshift Dreadmire. Did we ever? Did we ever? And I think this game made me see a little bit of its age. I know okay. We, we touted a lot. Yeah. But... It it just, it did sort of drag on a little bit. Really? There is a little bit of buildup, you know, as the monsters get better and the, and, and, and the troops that you get to pick get better, but it just seemed, I think maybe it was because it was three player. I'm not sure. I felt the exact opposite. Did you? Well, because we were playing three players, which is past our, our normal recommendation of, of the game. We recommend that Xena should be played roughly at the same player count as Imperium, which is to say one is fine, two is okay, three is pushing it, and people better know what they're doing. And we had a new player. We were playing with Chip the Third. And so I was like, all right. But uh, the game of, of Xenoshift Dreadmire only took about two hours. I didn't think that it dragged. Now, granted, that's long for a deck builder. I absolutely agree with that. But we were all involved in everyone's turns. We all had to pull together and use our abilities on everyone's turns. And it didn't. I didn't feel like it dragged at all, despite the fact that much of the time I was, you know, watching you and Chip the Third resolve your lanes, knowing that I had these abilities, but because I, I needed to know when to jump in, worrying about whether I needed to save them for my to save my own skin later on, and we. It was went right down to the wire. We needed right down to the last every card. purchase we had. Every time we hit a new wave, we desperately needed those new troops right away, and that kept things feeling relatively fresh for me. And I got to use new exploits that I hadn't used before. I was based on the introduction of those level two and level three troops. I got to use the intelligence operative in conjunction with a very very expensive item, and I got to recycle that. I got to use some of the grafting abilities in conjunction with the defensive armor, so as to get the the offense up. I I thought it was a great session. I really I was glad that we got to 
introduced to someone who has never played before. Like I said, it was right down. We got end of the game with one hit point left right down to the very end, which was pretty cool. But like I said, just just with this flux of newer games that we've been playing, it's just, it it feel it felt old to hmm. me. In the context specifically of co-op deck builders or just deck builders in general or games in general? Games in general. Games in general. Yeah, I don't know. Just for that downtime, I think, because more games are like sort of like bam, bam, bam. You know what I mean? Like one action, two actions. This I hear is, you. This is you're running your whole line, right? And everyone's just sort of, you know, there are, like you said, there are things, you know, you're going to throw in a flashbang or you're going to maybe throw in, a, you know, a sky trooper. Or, you know, there are things that you can jump in and use some abilities, but there is a lot of downtime. I hear you. I didn't feel comparatively. It as, I, I I honestly just did not feel it as downtime. And so often in cooperative games, you just don't really have much player interaction. Like just to pick one at random, like Siege of Rundar. When someone's taking their turn, their turn in Siege of Rundar, I will grant you that the downtime between turns in Siege of Rundar is a fraction of the downtime between resolving waves and Xenoshift. But when you're doing your turn, in, your turn in Siege of Rundar, I can do nothing. Whereas when you're resolving your lane, every time there's a problem, every time there's a key juncture, every time my perception is that things are going badly, I can jump in and say, okay, well, would this help you? Would that help you? I can use this ability on your behalf. And so just the level of interaction between players, the level of genuine cooperation made me feel that it earned its two hours of playtime. I'm very, I'm very disappointed. I'm sad. No, I did, I'm sad. Here I, I am sad. I'm I, sitting here I sad. Think, I think you're taking it too hard. I'm just saying. I'm taking it very personally, from, Walker. I'm sad. From last plays. You know, it's slowly. Anyway. Do, 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 you, know is, I, do you know what I think it is? Do you know what I think the problem is? It's because I pointed out that your copy is incomplete. Because you could don't be. have the hive. It could be. Could be true. Anyway, you were saying. Anyway. Always enjoyed it. Art is amazing. The, the special abilities. The, the gameplay. Everything about Zeno Shift, I still enjoy. It just felt a little aged to me this time I played. Okay. It is by Cool Mini or Not. It is designed by Michael Chanel. And it came out a long time ago, like you mentioned when, as we were playing it. It came out way back in the day. Way back in the day, Mark. <laughs> so old. In 2015. 2015. Yes. Only a few years after Dominion is the upshot. And I still maintain that in terms of genuinely interesting changes to the formula of deck building, the fact that they had the courage to completely abstract away money management from the entire game represented a genuine design advance, independently of all the co-op stuff that it does. Because money management can be the entire focus of your game. You know, when you play big money in Dominion, you are playing Dominion, and that is a valid approach. But they looked at the system and they said, we don't, wanna, we, don't, we don't want that to be the kind of decision that players are making. We want them to be managing troops and managing gadgets. We don't want them to be managing their economy at all. So the economy will manage itself. And I find that a very impressive innovation. That's Xenoshift. And I am sad. Got to play a game called Raccoon Tycoon. On the topic of Mosaic, which was designed by Glenn Drover. This was designed by Glenn Drover and published by Forbidden Games in 2018. And Raccoon Tycoon was, of course, redeveloped and redesigned into Lizard Wizard. I have not played Lizard Wizard, although I saw it played once. And Raccoon Tycoon is a very stripped-down game of auctions and money management. Essentially, there are these commodities. One of these commodities, parenthetically, is called goods. I do not approve of this. It is presented as a wooden box. And so the frequency with which many players, including myself, would say, okay, collectively these are goods. And like, no, 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 I don't mean goods. I mean... Goods, the goods. specific 
the specific thing called good, you know, goods. Bad, bad idea. Anyhow, there is a surprisingly subtle element of supply and demand interweaved with timing. Because one of the actions you can do for free is to play a card which will give you some quantity of commodities and will influence the price of some quantity of other commodities. And so a lot of people do that. They start building up commodities in an effort to then sell these commodities because you can sell any number of a single type. And that will leave you flush with cash. But the timing of that is interspersed with the fact that anyone can start an auction on the available points-bearing elements at any time. And indeed, if you start an auction and don't win the thing you get to take more turns. So if you want to start an auction on something that everyone else wants, but you don't, you can bleed money at no opportunity cost. And in point of fact, if there's the if there's someone who desperately wants that victory point bearing item, and you think that they're in the process of winning, well, you can just wait until they're poor, start the auction then, easily outbid them, and then you're able to interfere with, with a potential runaway leader at practically no opportunity cost from that perspective as well. It's very much like Tinner's Trail. Tinner's Trail uses the same sort of thing. You can start an auction for a piece of property, but you don't have to pay the action points if if uh, someone else wins the bid. And you can keep bleeding people dry until they have no money left and then just keep you know, proposing bids for less money, you know, scoop up a bunch of territories. So on top of that, the prices of these commodities are fluctuating. And so knowing when you were in a position to push and when you were in a position to take a step back, the tempo of Raccoon Tycoon was surprisingly interesting. Very, very simple game, incredibly quick to teach. I came in with zero expectations because I had heard people, in fact, compare Raccoon Tycoon to Mosaic. I don't know why. It's not really a, a tableau builder in any sense of the term. You don't really, you're not really collecting icons. You're collecting sets of similar cards in an effort to get additional points. And indeed, these sets feature delightful illustration of animal industrialists. The illustrations were so compelling in point of fact that when there were two of the same animal, say Top Dog Railways, do you get it? Do you get it? Yeah, it's, or, it's, or, or Fat Cat Railways. Oh, very, very clever. Very clever, very clever. We do not endorse body shaming of felines here, but we fatness here was represented more as like a PHAT fat, right? Yeah. It, the, but the illustrations were so compelling that people would actually ask, which of the two are you offering up for auction, even though they're identical cards in terms of gameplay effects, because we thought that one of them was fancier than the other. Anyhow. So there's a, there was even a slight degree of whimsy in our playing. I was I was thoroughly delighted. I... I came, as I say, I came in with zero expectations for Raccoon Tycoon, and I found the timing surprisingly subtle and determining when to auction things off and how to be surprisingly interesting. The actual auctioning itself, once that gets triggered, is reasonably straightforward. You know, people are going to try to bid you up, and you have to figure out how much money it's worth to you, etc. But money is only good in Raccoon Tycoon to either buy buildings, which tend to be very, very expensive, but give you a certain return, or trying to auction off these sets of cards. I'd happily play again. It was very quick, very engaging. Everyone at the table had a good time. And it left me, again, impressed with the design chops of Glenn Drubber, who's uh, who's not been consistent necessarily in his output. There's a fair number of things that he's done that I don't find enjoyable. But I do think that he's rapidly earning his way onto a list of designers that whose work I should always check out. And now I'm even kind of curious about Lizard Wizard. Although at the time when I, when I saw it played, it seemed to be significantly stodgier than Raccoon Tycoon, and the fact that it was so brief and direct was indeed a large part of its charm. I think at even 50% additional length, I, I wouldn't be nearly as enthusiastic about Raccoon Tycoon as I am, but as it is, it was a lovely little delight. That is Raccoon Tycoon.
I return to Dwellings of Eldervale. This is designed by Luke Laurie and put out by Breaking Games. I've kept this around, Mark, because it has 16 different factions that you can play. It's true. It also has a ton of, uh, like a variety of sort of upgrade cards that you can engage. And there's just things, something about it, this game, something about this game. <laughs> <laughs> that I enjoy for some reason. It is a worker placement game that has a multitude of different workers that you can play, but it is backed by this combat system that is that is frankly painful because it happened again, Mark. It happened. Yeah, I heard about it. Every uh, faction has three territories that are going to come up in the game. One that has uh, two power icons, which are very important because it you know leads to victory points and other things. And the other the other two have singles. So if they come up. At the beginning of the game, you want to jump on them and claim them as your own because if someone else takes them, then they're gone to you. So this came up. Put troops, a troop on it. Um, I was about to end my turn because in order to sort of put your dwelling, because, you know, they're dwellings and they're in Eldervale, Mark. Sorry, they're the, the what now? Yes. But one of the other factions, there was a good token. Because, one, you know, I say the combat is, is painful, but... Uh, you don't lose much, right? There's a couple of abilities. Well, there's some, there's some abilities when you recall your people you don't get, and you're not blocking those areas anymore. And, uh, but anyway, you get the troops back. No real cost. Except I'll for, disagree with you there. I, but go I, on. I, I know what you're saying. But anyway, long story short, they moved in because they have an ability that just let them pull their workers out of the underworld. So they just wanted the token. They knew they are probably going to lose the combat. They rolled one dice. I rolled three. Of course I lost. Yep. So, and then they promptly built a dwelling there. Sure. So I lost the territory. I also had a card that said if I had the most order power, then I would get, you know, a nice benefit. But now I no longer had the most order. So it's sort of like this triple... You should have rolled better, Walker. I I said that multiple times. In, that in game. this game about building infrastructure and claiming territory, you should have rolled better. Yeah, I told the warm boy, I said, warm boy, you, you, you didn't roll right. Yeah, yeah. But that that's the thing. I don't mind games where there are wildly unpredictable swings of combat, necessarily. But the precise combination of the fact that you don't control when you start fights. You don't even really control when you're the target of fights because it's almost impossible sometimes to avoid being predated upon based on a whole bunch of exogenous factors. And then on top of that, that a bad combat result or sometimes even perversely a good combat result of things go, what if, if there are special abilities that really go off the, the rail? And then you're prevented in doing the thing that gets you victory points that you are planning towards. It's that particular toxic stew that I find so offensive about Dwellings of Eldervale. Just for the record, to, re- to reiterate. It's true. People might say, well, you should have recalled sooner, right? If you do, yeah, I could have put two workers out and then recalled immediately. That would have guaranteed my, my position. Oh, sure. In, uh, in, in cases where you're actually pushing your luck, sure, fine. If there, there's also a, a worker placement spot that lets you build dwellings, not even the pullback, if they happen to be beside each other, that timing would have worked out as well. There's things that prevent it. There's sometimes it's beneficial to be removed from the map because you must place workers adjacent to each other. Maybe you want to be on the far side of the map. So you, you know, you, you clear the board of your pieces and on your next placement, you can go to wherever you like. Anyway, that being said, still sort of enjoyed it. Still want to play more. It's this propensity to self-harm Walker that makes me concerned about you. That could be a problem. I have vague hopes for the pseudo sequel for the sci-fi version 
But then again, I'm a hopeless optimist. It could be part of the production. Maybe just the production is so good. The flow. Oh, the production is really good. No, yeah, no, no and, doubt about and, it. And the flow is not bad either. It's, you know, it's place a worker and moving on. You know, I mean, it it, it flows well. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, it's just there are so many related to the combat and related to the monsters. It's just that in Dwellings of Elderville, there are so many reasons why you can't do what you want to do or can't go where you want to go. Yeah. Especially with the spells on top of everything we talked about already. Yeah. There are the spells. That's just a little icing on top oh, of yeah, the kit. But I mean, fundamentally, even take that card's pale in comparison to my objection to how the fundamental combat system works. Agreed. Dwellings of Elderville. Dwellings of Elderville. Got to play another game of Code of Nine. This is by Backafire, published 10 years ago by Z-Man. And this is a hidden victory conditions game where there are eight victory conditions that will score for everybody. But you only know what two of them are at the start of the game. And part of the game is figuring out what the victory conditions are while simultaneously trying to advance your, well, your holdings such that those victory conditions will favor you. And there's a whole whole bunch of shenanigans that you can engage in, stealing tokens from people, swapping victory conditions out such that what other players were working towards now aren't part of the victory conditions, trying to manage turn order in just the right way. It's a marvelously simple game in that Spaces just do what they say they do, and it's mostly just, I take a token, or I hand this token to one player and give it to somebody else. But nonetheless, it evolves because there are blocks of actions that only get revealed on each subsequent round. There are five rounds, and there's some actions that you only do in round one, and then round two, you get access to more, etc., etc. And nonetheless, it's got just that right level for me of ignorance and certainty. Because in games where you have hidden victory conditions, you very frequently find yourself arbitrarily handing victory to somebody else or arbitrarily locked away from being able to advance your own victory conditions. But in my so far, my two plays of Code of Nine, I found that it's balanced right on the knife edge of, well, I can operate on uncertain information and try to hedge my bets. And then as my knowledge evolves, so too can my strategies and options. And for a a game of its length, which is to say roughly about 45 minutes, it's hard to object too much if it's the case that victory hinged on that one card you deliberately didn't pursue in order to try to find out what it was before the end of the game showed up. So I do appreciate its its approach to information flow, its approach to risk, its very simplified approach to worker placement. I think Code of Nine gets a lot right. And I was I was very happy to go back to it, and I really do appreciate how the knowledge state in the game evolves, and you really are able to make enough inferences based on other people's actions to be able to hedge those bets. So I'm looking forward to more plays of Code of Nine. All right, so there's a very famous monument in Greece called the Acropolis. So this is, I'm talking about the 2022 game, because there are several Acropolis games. This is This is designed by Jules Massoud and published by... Gigamic, and this got a lot of buzz last year. It is a tile layer where you're you're placing uh, hexagons, like groups of three of hexagons, and it's a great little great little thing. You know, it's got a bunch of colors: purple for temples, blue for uh, residential areas, red for military, yellow for uh, merchants, and they all have their own sort of scoring rules at the end of the game. Like merchants can't be beside each other. Barracks must be on the outskirts of the city. Uh, temples must be completely surrounded and the residential must be all in one sort of group or they don't have to be, but you're going to score your biggest one. So keep them together. And the hook of this one is that you can start building on top of other blocks, but you're going to lose those scoring opportunities that you cover, but you sort of want to cover. There's also a white hex, and this is going to get you sort of uh patchwork type 
currency. So when you go to pick your tile, you can pick the one you want. And so you're sort of building for the future because, and hopefully because, uh, I guess if you get on level three, it's worth three tiles as opposed to just the one tile it is. So one tile on level three is actually three tiles. And then you'll score. Some of the tiles have stars on them, which is going to be how much they're going to be worth. So two stars on yellow means all your yellow tiles are worth, you know, two times whatever level they are. Very interesting game. I've played it a bunch on Board Game Arena. Give it a try. I didn't know it was on Board Game Arena. Question, do you play to a central area, or is everyone building their own area? Everyone has their own little tableau. Mm. The, the only player interaction is that sort of... Is the drafting is of the, the draft of three, yes. Yeah, because visually, and this is a completely unreasonable comparison, visually it looked a little bit like Taluva, the tiling game by Marcel and Casas-Lamerker, where you were indeed... You had these triple hex tiles, and you were building on top of other things, and you would strategically arrange things to try to crush your opponent's uh, buildings at the right time, or indeed have your buildings crushed because sometimes it was your advantage to do so. But uh, sadly, Acropolis does not seem to be of that ilk. Made me want to play Llama Land a little bit more, too. That was, I remember that. Being Llama Land was fun. It was fun. We should play more Llama, Llama Land, and maybe I should try Acropolis as well. Maybe I should dredge myself back to Board Game Arena pretending as though it's the height of the pandemic. And, and the interface is not terrible. You can actually tilt the the screen or the, the image, I oh, guess really? you could say, so you could see the three dimensions of it. Ooh, so that might make it very difficult for me to understand what's going on to have to do that. I mean, that does sound like a clever solution, but it's a solution to a problem that only exists in a 2D representation a la Board Game Arena. Agreed. So, definitely give it a try. Free on Board Game Arena. Acropolis by Gigamic Games. On the topic of free digital implementations, I played another game of Ortis Regni. Oh, Ortis Regni, what a heartbreaker you are. It breaks my heart because I couldn't find any local players or need anyone in person that was willing to play Ortis Regni with me, and I completely understand why. Walker bounced off of Ortis Regni, for example, hard. 15 text-independent multi-use cards where all it is is medieval artwork on the card and you just have to remember what they do in various contexts. And then the Vikings attack you and you can't remember how the combat system works and then an election for king is held and suddenly I'm the Pope and all of this from a very, very simple set of rules that are impossible to remember unless you've played a whole bunch of times. I'll never forget Ordnance Rigby just because it, it had such a huge marketing push at, at Gen Con. There like are... Every, everyone got a bag. Yep. With I still see those bags. They had a whole haul. Yep. Was I wasn't there, a, but I've heard such stories. Such a huge push for this game that no one had heard of. Ordis Regni and still haven't heard of is such an oddity for so many different reasons. It shouldn't exist. It's this bizarre unicorn in the hobby gaming field. I used to have a physical copy. It's a beautiful game. The cards are gorgeous. It has laser etched engraved wood card holders that you only use for the deck building process for which there's almost unrestricted deck building. You just take up to six cards of any type. Sometimes you'll never have any cards. Don't want to participate in the religious struggle? Don't participate in the religious struggle. You don't want to levy any troops? Don't levy any troops. You want to leave the Vikings alone? Go crazy. Whatever. Anyway, I love the deck building. I love the gameplay. But I couldn't justify it keeping it in my collection. As a consequence, I sent it off to a patron a while ago. It was one of the early things snatched up uh, by uh, patrons selecting games. And, you know, more power to them. I hope it's getting played. But... There's the free Steam version, which is really good for a while it was unavailable because Ortis Regni for a while was out of print. Now it's kind of sort of back in print, almost maybe. OrtisRegni.com claims that they're going to have a warehouse open by the end of March. Given that this is late April, 
I think their initial estimates may have been over, overly optimistic, but quite frankly, a three-week delay in getting a warehouse open in the board games industry is practically ahead of schedule. So we'll see what happens with that. Just more copies became available, and the, people thought it was late stock, but it turns out that new copies were being printed. Who knows? It's a mystery wrapped inside a riddle, wrapped inside an enigma, which is utterly deserving of Ortis Regni, that bizarre unicorn of a game that shouldn't exist. Anyway, I still have it in my Steam library. I pop it open every once in a while. It's a very good digital implementation, and I highly recommend Ortis Regni. If you haven't tried it, it's utterly unlike anything you've ever played before. It is a wonderful experience, even if you hate it, because at least you'll see what you can do with a weird card game. Uh, or destroying me. I wish I could justify keeping it in my collection, honestly, as a physical object, but it, it's one of those, getting rid of Ortis Regni was one of those things where it's like, congratulations, Mark, you are a reviewer now, not a collector. It's the sacrifices that I make it, for the listeners, Walker, and true. for you. you. You took Ortis Regni from me. Now, the word hero is thrown around an awful lot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it definitely doesn't apply here. Okay, so you were nice enough... <clears throat> To show us a game called <laughs> Rally Man Dirt. We were dirty, dirty boys we together, Walker. This is designed by Jean-Christophe Bouvier. Thank you. And put out by Grail Games. This is no, great. no, no. Holy Grail Games. Holy Grail Games. There was Grail oh, Games sorry. that had You're some right. serious publication problems. And now there's Holy Grail Games that has had some serious publication problems. It's important not to confuse them. So we somehow got a copy even though backers didn't. Or did they? Did everyone finally get their copies? I can't say for sure. Okay, well, let's hope that everyone got their <laughs> I copies. I certainly hope so. And this is a racing game. <laughs> and and it lives up to its name, right? It's, it's a rally racing game. Yes. Everyone does their own time. More or less. There's next to no player interaction. You actually... The, the first player goes, and then the first player goes again, and then the second, then the first and second player go. So now the, the first player's had three turns before anybody else. And then you no, s- two turns. And then you slowly goes put- one, one, two, one, okay. two, okay. three, so one, everyone, two, three, four. Everyone slowly gets pushed out onto the track. And, and very seldom do you catch the person in front of you. Correct. It's the minority of turns where you overtake somebody. And it has this interesting card system where whatever gear you finish in, you take a card and has a time on it. And when you f- finish the track, you add up all your time. Yeah. At the, at the end of the track, you say, hey, Mr. Rallyman, tally me the time cards. Just so. And if you crash, then then that's bad. Yeah. Flag come down and I yeah. want to go home. Just so. Um, And the push, there's an interesting push your luck. Much like, you know, many racing games there's a push your luck aspect. I'm I'm not sure. I much enjoy the Formula Day sort of push your luck. I think it... Oh, really? You prefer Formula Day? That didn't come up at all while we were playing. No? Well, that's You didn't weird. mention it. Are you, you sure? You should have mentioned Formula Day. I had it, if recorded, you prefer on Formula my, Day. I had yeah. it recorded on my phone. I kept hitting the button because my voice was getting a little dry. <laughs> from anyway, this, this, this comes in form because you're always rolling uh, a bunch of dice to movement. One through six for your gears and some cornering dice and, and other stuff. And depending on how many dice you roll, you roll those. And if you roll three hazards, you've spun out. So In this a, version, at least, yes. So there's a lot of dice rolling and, and debating if you're going to roll them all or one at a time. And if you're going to roll more. So it eats up a little more time. Where in Formula Day, the push your luck is, I'm going to roll this gear. You roll it and you move and you're done. So, and there's also a, a little more pushing luck with, you know, wasting a little bit of tires or wasting a little bit of brakes. 
and it'll still keep you in the race. Whereas here, one failure pretty well puts you out of that particular race. I'm not saying always and completely. In in our case. Yeah, but but having the worst time in a given race is entirely irrelevant no, because it's a rally of three races. That's what I was going to get to, yeah. So it's not terrible. And I was in last place in the first race and I ended up tying for first overall. Just so. So in one race, it'll put you out, but if as long as you do well in the other races, then it doesn't matter so yeah, much. Yeah, so you can you can spin yeah. out. You can really, really do badly. And indeed, in some contexts, uh, the it was the case that in the first race, for example, I didn't spin out. Chip the Third did spin out, and Chip the Third finished faster because he was he was racing more aggressively. So, okay, so let, let, let's address a couple of things. With respect to the pacing of Rallyman, I absolutely agree that the pacing of Formula Day is faster. The overall length of the game, though, is longer. We finished three short races of Rallyman faster than a single lap would take in a game of Formula Day. Yes. All right. I think I think you you don't need to be so so aggressive. I really enjoyed. It. I think I came off as as it <laughs> okay. Sorry, you're I right, didn't you're like right. it. I'm going to take twenty percent off the top. I, I I really did enjoy Rally Man. I enjoyed the push your luck. I enjoyed the length of the races. I enjoyed the fact that the card system is actually really good. The card system, the card system, and the dice are super clever because I think one of the things that just needs to be emphasized: it's very counterintuitive how the, how Rally Man works in terms of the gears. It's super counterintuitive, especially if you come to it with a basic understanding of pretty much almost any other race game, let alone Formula Day. Because you don't roll the dice to determine how far you go. You pre-allocate your dice in a weird movement system, and then you determine how you're going to use them to mitigate hazards. And that part, the, 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 the spacing is deterministic. And indeed, the timing is deterministic. The long and the short of it is, you always want to end your turn in the highest gear possible, because that represents you going faster. So if I go two spaces and it takes me 10 seconds of game time, that is much, much better than my going five spaces over the course of the, uh, on the track and it taking me 45. And that is very counterintuitive. And it's a strange sort of abstraction. It works conceptually kind of, but I still don't fully, I still hadn't fully wrapped my head around it by the end of, end of the game. You have these default suppositions, like you want to go as far as possible in a given turn. No, not necessarily. It's 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 bizarre. It's a weird kind of puzzle as far as racing goes. But due to the lack of interaction on the track, and it's the same thing. I haven't played Heat, but I've heard that you just move through other cards. I know in Formula Day that uh, when you're playing with newer players or players that haven't played very often the cars tend to stretch out. But if you have players that have played a lot, there's a lot of blocking in the corners. There's a lot of jockeying for position. There's drafting. That part of racing I really enjoy, which is not present in Rallyman. Okay, so with respect to Heat, uh, whatever you've heard about Heat, I can assure you that the drafting is so consequential, it makes the, the comparative lack of blocking irrelevant. I would say that relative car position in heat is more important than it is in Formula Day. Now, that having been said, let's be perfectly frank. If your approach to racing games is, I want there to be blocking, that's an entirely legitimate reason not to like heat and not to like Rallyman. That's fine. Uh, but just acknowledge that that is emphasizing one aspect of what could broadly be described as elements of racing. Now, for a lot of a lot of people who care a lot about driving, 
puzzling out the track is 99% of what racing is, right? Because a lot of races are just time trials anyway. A lot of races, even where there's real life blocking and drafting and all these other things, it's all still about figuring out the angles and managing your gears and knowing when to accelerate and so forth. And Rallyman seeks to evoke that far more than anything else. I... I enjoyed the fact that it was quicker than a lot of other racing games. Because, again, that, that's one of my problems with a lot of racing games. I enjoyed this, the fact that it was almost like a collaborative puzzle. Because people were generally helping each other. In terms of, oh, well, you know, if you go shift down to, to second here and then accelerate through this turn, you'll go faster than you would otherwise. Oh, okay. So that was the player interaction that we got. You know, turning a competitive game into a kind of a co-op series of puzzles. And so that part I appreciated. But again, how counterintuitive it is, and this is nothing to say with how well it or poorly it represents racing. I have no intuitions about how racing actually works. And I have no intuitions about what a racing game should bring to the table. Other than occasionally my disappointment that racing games tend to go very long. So Rallyman Dirt presents a series of kind of weird puzzles that I thought were kind of okay. And... That's not bad. Now, the risk-reward element, again, so counterintuitive to me, I wasn't really able to wrap my head around it. And at the end of the day, I think a close race, a close match, will not be entirely determined by luck of the dice. Because when you're making big turns, the big consequential turns, those are the ones where the variability can spike. I'm either going to finish this turn having swept across much of the map, and it'll have taken me two seconds of game time or a minute of game time because I done spun out. And then, oh, I get my penalty card for having spun out and it says, oh, you didn't spin out at all, Sisu. Okay, fine. Uh, that part was also a little weird. <laughs> so, look, Rallyman is fascinating. I'm really glad to have to have finally tried it because it actually, when the first Rallyman came out, I read the rules and it made zero sense to me. I literally couldn't process what it was asking me to do because, again, the dice were being used in a weird way and these cards, it's like, well, I don't understand how the gears are working. But, you know, sitting down and, and, and playing a game of Rallyman Dirt was really kind of interesting. I don't know if I'd seek to play it again because, again, it's, it's a very strange kind of puzzle. But as far as racing games go, it's got a lot to recommend it. Yeah, speaking of racing games that were blocking as bad, there's a game called Downforce. Yes. Where blocking is bad. Available at your local dollar store. It's true. <laughs> so that was Rallyman Dirt by Jean-Christophe Bouvier, Holy Grail Games. Decided to sit down for some solo gaming and played another game of Resist. This is a review copy sent to us by the designers, designed by Trevor Benjamin, Roger Tankersley, and David Thompson. Published by Salt and Pepper Games. Salt and Pepper is a newcomer to the historical gaming market. They plan on putting out similarly adorably small-boxed solo historical-themed games going forward, and I, for one, am very compelled. I, I keep saying this every time I talk about Resist. The art does a lot of the work, humanizing and personalizing the element of Resist, and it's managed to reveal to me an attribute that I certainly never would have contested before, but hadn't really been made painfully apparent until playing Resist. Eyewalker, amongst the possible alternate career paths that I could consider past podcasting, should not become the leader of a Resistance movement. Probably a bad idea. Yeah, I don't think it would work out. I don't have the stomach for it. I just do not have the stomach for leading a resistance movement because the kind of campaign element of resist, where you it's it's a one sitting campaign, but you decide to keep taking bases and keep doing engagements until you decide to stop. I'm usually ready to stop. My nerves are frayed, not not in a sort of serious stress way, but after the first engagement, I'm like, I need to bring all these guys home. <laughs> I want all these charmingly named and charmingly rendered with lovely personality. I want them all to survive. Now, granted, 
in the context of a game of resist. Surviving means under a fascist regime <laughs> and the one that they're trying to dismantle. So it's all very complicated. It's just, but after every engagement, you have to decide whether you want to keep going or whether you want to call it a day. And given my natural conservative nature and given how charming the characters are, I always want to call it a day, which is not to say that I don't enjoy playing the game. It's just, I feel like a, every decision feels more consequential when there's weight behind it. Sometimes this can be done graphically. Sometimes you don't need it to be done graphically. I, I recall Meltwater, for example, where you're starving civilians to death just because they're the wrong color of civilians and they're all just represented very, very abstractly. In Resist, a lot of the personality comes from the art, and I think that uh, a fair amount of the credit goes there, which is not to say that the design work isn't there. It's, it's a game about managing special abilities and deciding when you need to your, use your one-shot special abilities to counter the obnoxious special ability of that opposition soldier that just got turned up that you hadn't anticipated. And it's a, a, a very, very low-impact, rules-wise game with a lot of tension attached. And that is I, that is how I enjoy my solo gaming. And I think it's a delightful package, and I really appreciate that salt and pepper Games is going to be continuing in this vein. Small boxes, very affordable, relatively uh, light rules load, very light rules load from a historical war game perspective, but nonetheless situated in history and offering some interesting tension. So high recommendations for Resist. I've enjoyed going back to it every time, even just to look at the delightful artwork. And those are the games that we played this week. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So it's episode 260, and we get to flog the Patreon. Mark, did you know we had a Patreon? We have a Patreon. Yes, I'm, I'm intimately aware. And we talk about all sorts of other stuff. If you enjoy this podcast, we have all much more content. Mark does a great show called Bloat, where he talks about all sorts of stuff. Every other week, we do Pledge of Indifference, where we talk about upcoming crowdfunding stuff. We have extended episodes where we have stuff before and after the episodes you're listening to now. Ad-free episodes as well. Access to our lovely patron-exclusive Discord. or Our overlords and commissioners get access to games we're done with, which is to say most games because we can't keep many of them. I'm, I've sent out a whole bunch of games last week. This, this coming week, I'm going to be sending out a couple more. This is uh, Europeans always ask, is this open to Europeans? And the answer is yes. We send games to Europe. We are an international podcast. So this being said, if you take in any content whatsoever board game or otherwise, send a message to those content creators. Tell them what a great job they're doing. If they are board game creators, send a message to the designers and or the publishers and say, hey, I listen, I heard your game from here and this is why I bought it. Or I'd really like to, you know, hear about your game from these podcasters. Can you send them a, a review copy? Reach out. Let people know about content creators that you enjoy. Well said, Walker. So Mike Hutchinson, the designer of Gaslands and a Billion Sons, one of my favorite tabletop wargame designers, has a Kickstarter up now for his new game called Hobgoblin. 
Hobgoblin is going to be a very, very nasty in tone, masked fantasy battle type miniatures war game. And it has the rule of carnage imported direct from Gaslands, which definitely inspires confidence in me, which is to say in cases, in any case of ambiguity, rule in favor of whatever causes the most carnage, which is a great way to keep games moving fast and not bogging down, mentioning no other tabletop war game rule sets involving masked fantasy battles at all. And I'm a big fan of everything Mike Hutchinson does. I have pledged for Hobgoblin. I'm very much looking forward to seeing the final product. That is on Kickstarter now, Hobgoblin by Mike Hutchinson. So, Mark, we have entries for our, our very popular segment, which is, who asked for this IP game? <laughs> for my entry, it's going to be the Call of Duty board game. It's true. So this is coming out by Arcane Wonders, the same people that brought us Sheriff of Nottingham, the Dice Tower Essential line. And it's... Uh, going to be Call of Duty the board game. I'm, I'm so looking forward to it. It's going to be great. It is. I have a question. Uh, a, a friend of mine asked on social media, is it going to come with the endless stream of insults and racial epithets that you would get online? I think that is an excellent stretch goal. If you pledge for like the $350 version, don't insert a picture of that backer into the game. Instead, give them a certain number of hours where some 14-year-old is willing to sit on the phone and insult you while you play the game. You know, how it's going to work is after every action you take, you roll three dice, and uh -huh. that's where you look up in your book. Okay, and yeah. And there'll be an entry there that you have to read aloud. It'll be like some sort of... That's a good call. Yeah, that sounds cheaper as it, well. That's a much be, better idea than my suggestion. It's going to be great. I can't yeah, yeah. Also, under the topic of who asked for this, there's going to be a board game version of The Last Spell. This is a very minor indie PC game that I only know about because Huey won't shut up about it. I mean, a number of adaptations make sense. It's Slay the Spire, even though it's already a card game, I kind of thought it was inevitable that there was going to be a physical version. Dead Cells seems a few years too late, but I'm, I'm interested in the designers and the publisher, so I'm definitely going to take a look at that. But, I mean, how many indie roguelikes are they going to plumb for board game adaptations? If they're if they're already adapting things like The Last Spell, where's my Risk of Rain board game adaptation? Where is it, Walker? Walker, where is it? I want a new XCOM board game, Mark. Sure. We have talked a lot about Civ games so far. Let's talk about some more Civ games. I've got two here. The first one is Path of Civilization. This is by Fabian Grindel, the co-designer of Turning Machine. And the, the hook on this one, Mark, is going to be simultaneous play. Ooh. A Civ game with simultaneous play. So I'm well, there was all, already that real-time Civilization game. Yes. That was published last year. But this one will be different. Okay. Then there's Alate, Dawn of Civilization. And this is going to be a Civ game done by Paolo Mori. Ooh. And o Ole Steinless. Ole Steinless? Oh, yes. Th excellent. That's a, that's a stellar pedigree, quite frankly. And this is going to be a deck-building sort of Civ game. Deck building slash kingdom building. It's going to be like the early dawn of Civ. Okay. And the art so far looks fantastic. I'm there. Sign yeah. me up. We reviewed Revive just last week. And I mentioned at the time that there was going to be an expansion. There's a little bit more information now about the expansion. It's called Revive Call of the Abyss. It is going to have new tribes, new cards introduced, and new tokens introduced to all the piles. It's also going to introduce a new mechanism related to the water, which, quite frankly, is it, it, I'm a little bit nervous about that part, if only because 
Uh, Revive seems to be leaning into the new proper nouns uh, fallacy of a lot of IPs. It's already the case that all the the the, tr- the factional tribes get, uh, have incredibly weird faction names, and they seem to want to be casting a universe. And as I said in the, the review of Revive, there was one thematic element that I wanted Revive to explore, and it didn't. So throwing more proper nouns at the uh, concept and the context is not apt to make me more interested in the, in the world. But that having been said, I'm a big fan of the game Revive. I'm a big fan of the designers designing Revive. And so I'm happy for more content that is going to be Revive Call of the Abyss. Speaking of more content of games that I enjoy, Bitoku is going to get an expansion called Restoran. And it's just more stuff. Three modules, more cards, more tiles. More stuff is good for Bitoku. It has that very interesting two-layer board where you just slot in stuff. Slot in different stuff. (laughs) So I have a game called Ernest and Celestine. It's a cooperative game from Remy Laurier and Space Cow. So this is not a game that you're going to bring to your local game group. Why is that? Because what you do is something that I used to do as a child. You would draw pictures on someone's back and they'd have to guess what you were drawing. Oh, yes. There was a cooperative game that had that as an element of, of guessing that we talked about. Yes. Yeah. Frequently, there are these these party-ish guessing games where they assume a degree of personal intimacy that is inappropriate for strangers. So that this, doesn't say they're bad games. No. That's yeah, what yeah. I'm saying. This is going to be a great family game, not one you'd bring to your local game group. Sure. I don't bring it to your local game group. Yeah, that sounds like a bad idea. So, yes. So, there'll be shapes and other stuff. The artwork is amazing. That's what draw me to it immediately. Take a look at the art. Very visually pleasing. And that is from Space Cow. And lastly, I have Richard Breeze. Guess what? He's made a game that's not a key gamer. Really? I didn't know yes. he was capable. I know. <laughs> and it's also being put out by R&D Games. This one is going to be called The Glade. It's sort of a tile lane, toadstool set collection Looks very interesting. Take a look on it. It is on the Board Game Geek news page. Has very interesting gameplay elements. The Glade. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our topic of the week, which is the games must flow. Now, Walker. Yes, Mark. Let me identify a particular phenomenon that I think can frame a lot of, or at least some of this discussion from your perspective. And I want to ask you some questions about it. All right? All right. Okay. Because I think this phenomenon can be bookended nicely with a phenomenon that I think is characteristic of my play. All right? And don't worry, I'll be making fun of myself later. <laughs> I'm not even sure this is to be making fun of you. This is a thing that happens often. Here's what happens. Walker makes a play. And either because it's a rule that wasn't explained, or a rule you didn't anticipate, or a detail that you'd forgotten to, to notice on the board, or uh, some weird random event that happens, whatever. Something happens, and it becomes clear that the play you just made was facially suboptimal. Like, not something that would be characteristic of someone with your decision-making capabilities. And then your face and your entire body become concorded with what I will call the pain. All right? It's clear that Walker immediately regrets what he's done. You sort of kind of... There's a head motion that you sometimes do very characteristically, as though you've been physically struck. Right? <laughs> Have I been unfair so far nope. in my characterization no, of something that happened? Good, okay. Good. Then what happens is the following. Someone, usually myself or Huey, this is often what happens, say, Walker, feel free to take that back. This is especially when it's because of a rule that you hadn't internalized or had missed or whatever. 
or because of a detail you've missed on the board. Sometimes even it's as a result of a catastrophic random thing, If it, especially if it is in conjunction with some of those. We almost never let people undo things after randomness is revealed. But sometimes when Walker has failed to notice something, and, I, and I'm not saying you're oblivious. People fail to notice things. But after the reaction comes, <laughs> we say, Walker, just, just, just take it back to something else. And you say, no, 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 no. I did it. I did it. And then what happens is if Huey brought it up, I bring it up again. It's like, no, seriously, Walker, you can undo that and it'll be fine. I don't think I've ever seen you take anything back under those circumstances no, ever. I, well, it might have happened once or twice. Maybe. And and then it just happens, that I'll you know, explain, well, because I want to do this and this, and, and then that would give me this, and I would get all these points. And then someone says, take it back. So I take it back and then do something else, and then someone will do something that will stop me from getting those points well, you know to that... stop me from getting the points. So it's like sort of like that double <laughs> kick to the groin. It's like, oh, you didn't internalize it right, and you figured a way to do it anyway on your next turn, but someone sees you're about to get all those points, so they rob you of those points, and now you're disappointed again. So I just say, no, I'll just live with that, and I'll figure out something else. I don't know that I accept the generalization that you're necessarily going to be frustrated. You don't need to, because in these circumstances... It's so, as I say, the move is so facially suboptimal that it's not, that undoing it or declaring that that's not really what you wanted to do based on the context doesn't reveal anything about your future intentions other than I would rather not be a crazy person. Like we're talking about contexts where, you know, you pay a dollar for a token that costs five and so you just wasted the dollar or you you send a troop into a combat that is literally impossible to win or you put your worker in a place that literally gives you no benefit or gives you a benefit you've already claimed from some other action. I'm not talking about context where it turns out that it was like, oh, well, you know, the economy's bad. I'm selling my wheat for two rather than four. No, that doesn't usually bear the Walker, the Walker reaction. In those contexts, the weird thing is, now, the, the the irony is that it's now not you causing the flow to be interrupted. The flow of the game is being interrupted because of Huey and or myself trying to persuade you to do something that you've never done or almost never done. But we do it reflectively. It's our nature. It's true. And that would, that would cause me to have to rethink of another turn and therefore disrupt the flow of the game. Okay. Fair enough. I'm not saying you don't do it for a reason. I, I sometimes joke unfairly that you are fundamentally a masochist, and this may or may not be true, but it is un, it, it is it is unfair to accuse you of being masochistic in these contexts because you do have a reason, and that is because you value the game flow. So why? So that, that, T- tell this us. Is, this is what br- brought this topic. Exactly, it is sort of a side to it, but it is it is optimal play versus the overall game experience. Hundred percent. So. Through looking up stuff for this, I think I've just realized something is that I play games differently and for different reasons than other people. Okay. Like I, I, play, I play for the interaction with my friends. Sure. The sort of watching the-, the Do you game. have any of those? No. Okay. But I, I can pretend, Mark. Sure. This is, you know- Okay, fair enough. So no one else needs to know that. Sure. So watching the sort of game state evolve uh-huh. and watching the different mechanics, you know, change the game state. And stuff like that. And it's just watching it happen, seeing how designers, you know, want you, you know, seeing the magic that they create, right? Sure. But you're not totally divorced. 
and I don't mean this as a criticism at all, you are not totally divorced from your own success or failure in the context of a game. You like to win. You like to do well. That's right. Go on. So is figuring out the optimal turn, holding up the game, pulling the other players out of the experience. So this is how I went into this whole thing. It's like someone's decide to, to, you know, stop. It's like, oh, wait, I think I can get 10 points instead of, you know, the four that I thought I was going to get. Sure. And they've, and they're going to pull back their turn and they're going to rethink it. And they're going to like go through all the motions and, and figure out, oh, wait, no, that's only eight points. Okay. Wait, if I do it this way. And like, we're all just sitting there, you know, can, can we, can we play? <laughs> but, but that being said, I, this was something else I read, right? The experience that's created by players trying to win might be part of the whole experience that I want as well, right? Yeah, I, I, I've argued that for years, actually, on this podcast, that there, that when you play a competitive game, you're entering into an unspoken social contract that you are going to play... Well, here's where things get hazy. I would normally, when, when phrasing things pithily, because usually I never waste a word, I will never. always only ever use a single word even if five or six other flowery, elaborate words might suffice. Not even a single syllable would you waste, Mark. Thank you, Walker. I'm glad you acknowledge how parsimonious I am with my syllables. Anyway, I I would say that you are entering into an unspoken tacit agreement to play competitively, you know, to, to play to win. Now, obviously, a lot is is a lot of questions are being begged by that statement. And I think a lot of this discussion about how much game flow can be sacrificed can indeed be parsed out from those individual things. But I do agree with you that the overall magic of most competitive games only results when people are playing to maximize their position within broad within broad constructs. People playing a competitive game somewhat randomly or people playing a competitive game only to help their neighbor, you don't get that kind of magic. Things go off the rails and it's just generally not as interesting. The game states themselves are objectively, I think, less interesting in a lot of those contexts. True, but I, I feel as though I'm seeing, I can see in a, in a game night situation where people might be, you know, not playing... To win, they might be just showing up to have fun, or they might be. But in in someone's home, when you're there to play a game, I really feel everyone there is there to oh, win. Sure, but play, when I say play to win, I don't. Again, that's why I said a lot of questions yes. are being begged there, and I don't mean it the same way that say David Serlin would mean it. David Serlin has made a bit of a career being, quite frankly, a bit of a jerk about what it is to play to win. What I mean to play to win is, broadly speaking, insofar as you are consciously advancing the game state, you are going to consciously advance your own success rather than consciously advancing someone else's success or playing randomly. That's that's the bar. It's yeah. a low bar. It's a very low bar. Then we get into the somewhat higher bars because I fear what you are doing when, ex when, when articulating this is that you're erecting a false dichotomy. Now, false dichotomy is falsely presupposing that there are two things that are that are necessarily opposed to each other when, point of fact, they could be compatible or there could be a spectrum. I fear the false dichotomy that you're erecting is optimal play versus everything else. Because I think there are degrees of optimality. I think that the person who spends the entire... who, who paralyzes the game state especially near the end of the game when it's clear they've already won or the, the uh, or something who spends that extra 5 minutes trying to eke out those those two or three marginal points from resource conversion doesn't have to be put in the same bucket as Michael Walker undoing a turn from after the reaction right? agreed those are two different phenomena especially when 
a plurality or even a minority of the rest of the table is saying, no, Walker, go ahead, right? Because game flow and playing optimally don't have to be intentional. I'm not saying you did. I'm not saying you said they, that they had to be. But game flow gets to ebb and flow, not to, not to make a pun out of it. And if the rest of the table is saying our conception of the game flow allows for Michael Walker to undo his turn, it is conceivable to me, this is too strong an accusation, but it's conceivable to me to advance the position hypothetically that if Michael Walker insists that his turn is over and it is turn for the next player to go, that you might actually be the one undermining game flow. You understand what I'm saying? Let me let me rephrase it. I said I realized that was a web of words. <laughs> it is possible that I I say what you're saying is it's all my fault. No, I I was I was trying not to phrase it that way. What I'm saying is is that it is possible that some people's conception of ideal game flow includes retaking turns. Gotcha. That's what I'm saying. And so when the rest of the table is encouraging you to retake your turn, it is conceivable that what they're saying is we value your appreciation of your own standing more than game flow. That's one possible interpretation. But another possible interpretation is our version of game flow includes undoing turns because this is how I want to bring it back to making fun of Mark. I'd retake turns all the time and you let me, <laughs> right? Well, because I, because I, I can see where if you didn't, you would be upset with the game state. Well, okay, upset is... I shouldn't say upset yet. That is uh, unsatisfied. Uh, yeah, with the definitely dissatisfied. If I become upset, I'm not going to say that I never get upset over game states. Yeah. I shouldn't. I need to grow up like every other human being. And I agree with you that I can be a, a, as big a baby as almost anyone else at any game table. Well, almost. I played with children. They can be bigger babies. But in cases where I would be generally upset, I need to grow up. But in contexts where, you know, I quickly, well, sorry, can I, can I redo that? And people are like, oh, yeah, sure. It's like, no, I'm going to go here and I'm going to get five wood instead of two stone. I hope that most of the time my redos are more in line with that. And you're happy to let me do it. Yeah, because you've already figured out the turn. You've already said, wait, that's the better move. And you, and you just do it as opposed to that was terrible. And then you're like, no, I don't want to do that. And then you, you move your worker back and now, and now you're looking at the board and thinking, okay, what would be a better move? I can think of specific examples, Walker, where literally, I, I'm not going to say that the specific combination happened, but the, the specific detail, the detail pattern emerged. We're playing Agricola and one of the spaces gives six wood and one of the spaces gives two wood and you place on two wood and you're like, I really need this wood. And then you look over and you see, oh, but that basically is six wood. And then you do the reaction like Walker. Move your worker over there. Take the six wood instead. And you say, no, no, no. I played it. I played it. I'm done. There, I'm sure there was probably another sub action there that, that I took at the same time. No, no, no. Your, <laughs> your, what I'm saying is, is that my prioritization of optimality uh, goes to the extent of redos too often. And I'm saying that your conception of the importance of game flow comes at the expense of of an appropriate level of redos. Because I, I think when I when I hear people talking about game flow, I, I love a game with incredibly good game flow. Um, to, to my mind, Antica and Imperial are two good examples, right? Imperial is much heavier and it proceeds more slowly as a consequence, but nonetheless, you get these great snappy turns and everything's moving like, like grease lightning. When turns slow down, it's because something interesting is happening. Everyone gets up and looks over and everyone's moving the pieces around. Wonderful, wonderful game flow, right? Not all games can work that way, unfortunately. Uh, 
And I, I don't know that it is necessary for you to sacrifice yourself on the altar of Gameflow single-handedly when everyone else at the table is encouraging you to do otherwise. True. I, I, maybe I feel that sometimes it might happen too often, right? Because if you let it go too many times, then it's definitely getting into, you know, extending the game longer than it needs to be. I hear you. And I definitely think, I can definitely think of times when I've abused this, right? My own sense of frustration has caused me to un- redo turns more often than should have. But I don't think it's the norm at our tables. No. I mean, and it's certainly, I certainly never get the impression. I'm saying is that you have a radical double standard with respect to yourself. That's what I'm saying. It's really egregious. The number of redos that you're willing to give someone in any game is always way more than zero. Maybe in the back of my head, I'm I'm thinking I'm setting an example as well. It's like, oh, so would you rather? No, not always. Just sometimes (laughs) it gets, it gets a little. Like you said, especially at the end, right, where mm. where it's that last turn and they're trying to eke out the very last points, it, it sometimes just gets painful. Well, I think it's one of the reasons why we don't tend to like those calculational point salad games quite as much as a lot of other people, right? Like, the like to my mind, Stefan Feld games work a lot this way, where it's a lot about resource conversion and nearly every turn you're, you're going to take is going to give you three to six points, more or less, depending... And near those last turns, you're like, okay, I have these following five point conversion options. Let me calculate what all of them will do for my last two turns. I agree with you. Certain games lend themselves to that. And that's one of the reasons why I think the appropriate reaction is not to play those kinds of games and then insist that everyone calculate faster or not calculate I think the better reaction is to not play those kinds of games. <laughs> do you understand? I do. All right. Here's maybe this will bring some light here. Okay. For, okay pl- please illuminate. For people playing board games, is it a challenge to themselves to win or get a better score? Or is it an overall experience for everyone at the table? Mm. Or a third option, which again, since, since we're being so, so psychoanalytical of, of our two playing styles, which I think hopefully will be illuminating to other people who might or might not identify with this. You identify a third category very often, which is not that you want to play to win. You don't necessarily care quite as much about your standing at the table, but you have some notion of acceptable level of play for Walker standards. And this is a sliding scale. And you can come in last place, but if you think you played to your abilities, whatever that is, you'll be happy. But if you win, but you think you didn't reach Walker score, you can be very frustrated. I find this fascinating because I don't have any independent notion of how good Mark play is, except insofar as the final ranking. <laughs> there might be some exceptions, like games I've played like a hundred times before, right? Maybe Race for the Galaxy or Raw are a couple of examples where if I, you know, if I finish a game of Raw and I've got 17 points, I've got a sense of that's not really doing very well. But All right. So there was an article that said something like, you know, here's 30, 35 Things to be a good board gamer. Really? Right. I only have five here. Okay. Because there's some. Thirty-five is a lot. It is. Anyway, one was focus on the game, and it was talking about like don't be talking to the other players. No time for socializing. This is you know the for thirty-five ways to win at games. You know, just concentrate. Ouch. Yeah, exactly. So this is what I mean. These are, like this is so against the way I play board games. I found this interesting. But this part of the thing, like game flow, can be the enemy of social interaction. 
I agree with you that a reasonable person knows how to contour and contextualize the social interaction. Like if, if you just want to share a funny meme with somebody, do it to somebody who just took their turn as opposed to somebody who's about to take their turn. And that's not even a really good example. I don't know that sharing funny memes is a great thing to do in the middle of a, of a board game necessarily, but you know what I'm getting at. Yeah. I, like I said, I just picked these five out that were, that were like anti mice playing stuff. This sure. one is sure. play to win, not for fun. What? Yep. Are, are you serious? That was number two. Yeah. Focus was number was number one. Who wrote this? I I didn't. I should have put some. It was like a article. I, I can give oh, you. That we'll sounds we'll make terrible. Ones. Okay, continue on this nonsense. Number three. I left the numbers here. So this is number three. It goes one, two, five, thirty-four. Anyway, okay. Um, <laughs> What's don't, don't cut your friends any slack. Which which was not terrible, but it was pretty well like leaned in. Say, if you see an advantage, then crush your friends. <laughs> I see, well, okay. I see. I see that as a strong thesis and a weak thesis. The weak thesis is uh, if you're playing against a table with friends and strangers, don't cut your friends and eat slack at the expense of strangers. Yes. I think that's utterly helpful. The strong version of that is more like the David Sterling version, which is you better grind their face into the dirt so they know who's boss. And that I definitely don't agree with. And this one is is the thing that, anyway, this is the one that I think is goes against my playing style. Of really? This the antithesis of, okay. it says don't go after personal goals. And and, mm. and and you you know how Ooh. I play. It's like yes. moral victory or at least yeah, I the did, walker standards. That at I was at least about. I did this in the game. Like I did the silly thing. You know, I got, you know, the 400 resources of this mm. one thing. So anyway, so don't go after personal goals. Just go after actual victory points. I'm more sympathetic to that. I'm definitely more sympathetic to that than you are. It depends on the game and depends on the context. Like if, for example, because this goal could be at loggerheads with your idea of game flow anyway. Right. If if there's a game that's predicated on advancing, because you can design a game to flow better, and there we criticize games that are designed that don't. And if it's the case that you look at a, a certain game, and you're like, well, nah, I don't want to do that necessarily. Uh, I'm not going to advance my victory conditions in Mosaic. I'm just going to accumulate as much money as I humanly can. Right. That's all that I ever want to do. That can seriously lead to 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 game flow problems because you're always teaching out these weird accounting actions that require lots of fiddly counting and you're constantly making change and all that other nonsense, for example. And on top of that, there's my previous contention that if you play arbitrarily or so contrary to the expectations of other players, you might then just be a chaos monkey in the context of the game. And I'm pro-Gibbon, but not chaos monkey. Yeah, to go back, because I forgot to say that, because we're talking about the last part of the game, because I forgot to read the, my actual sentence for that. It's first they have to, because it's hidden scoring, Uh huh. so first they have to add up everyone else's score, so they know where they stand. Yeah. Then they have to get the most optimal turn. Anyway. It's true. Moving on to the very last one, number 34 was mess up other people's plans. Uh, yeah. yeah, I know, right? Yeah, well, that 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 I think touches on something that's that's ancillary game flow, but is nonetheless an interesting question. We've talked about this before, actually, which is, do you care uh, in a competitive game where it's about points? Is it better to win, say, a seventy-four to seventy-two, or is it better to win sixteen to two? Right, right. In the same game with the same scoring option, like. And different people will respond differently there. And different people value second place differently. Some people view second place as first losers. Some people think it's almost as good as first place. It's it's a it's a complicated matter. And I will say this though. People who care a lot 
about relative rankings and fine grain things like that, they're often the ones who end up engaging in calculations that you and I would agree are deleterious to game flow. If it's just a question of, I've got these goals to pursue, I'm going to go after them. Once you start complicating it a lot, it's like, how many bananas do they have? I think they want the bananas. How can I get bananas while denying them bananas? You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unless that's the key part of the goal. Mm. I like, covet the bananas. Like for uh, here's here's a here's a good example. When playing Sidereal Confluence, I know it's not a game that you that you enjoy. Sidereal Confluence, I think, based on the statements of the designer and based on playing the game, it's pretty clear that it was not designed for people to be constantly reevaluating everyone else's score. That's just not how the game was designed to do. You want to maximize your score. If maximizing your score throws a bone to somebody else in the process, so long as you're profiting a lot and you're you're going forward, you're making your deals, go forth and do it. But there are these people who just don't understand that mindset. And any game with serial confluence where they're involved, it grinds to a halt. It's like, well, I'm getting a bunch of cubes out of this transaction, but I saw you just made a whole bunch of transactions where you got a whole bunch of cubes. What are you going to do with those cubes? Like, dude, do you want the trade or not? <laughs> right? Like, the trade's either valuable to you or it's not. If it is, yeah, let's, let's, if not, let's go off and seek greener pastures elsewhere. Yeah. It's tricky. I mean, because this is fundamentally, you know, to go back to how we, how we phrase this, this is fundamentally a question about values, about competing values. And the only point that I really want to make and that I hope that you – that. <laughs> that I hope that you internalize, that sounds really condescending, that I really want to make and that I, that I think is very important is that when you're prioritizing things like game flow, you might be throwing out some other considerations that you might not have considered. Sometimes that is even game flow itself, right? Because you say you want to be an example to people. Well, maybe Huey and I aren't comfortable with games with no takebacks, <laughs> for example, in the context of your own turns. And so well, maybe, I, I said I'm, I might have that in the back of my head. Yeah, I didn't say yeah, I, yeah. I was I was you know up oh, on it, up on the cross of no 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 of but, game flow. but similarly this this is in the back this might be in the back of our heads as well. When I say after you do the reaction capital T capital R and I encourage you to go and just take the four extra wood on that neighboring space that you neglected to count before going to get the wood, I'm not doing that consciously because like yeah because two turns from now I might do the exact same thing. No, I do it because my notion of game flow it includes the possibility of takebacks. And that's the kind of flow that I want. Because I've also played at tables where people play a board game like it's some sort of dental exam and they want to get in and out as fast as possible. There are people who accuse us of that as well. There are people who say that there's no such thing as a game that goes too long. Right? We talked about Xenoshift. Xenoshift is a game that we both consider to be, broadly speaking, too long. We've always felt that way. You, you seem to think it's, it's age is making that worse. I don't, whatever. But we both agree that it's too long. There's some gamers who refuse to designate any game as too long because they think, ah, that's just, if a game is fun, more of it must be better, right? So it's already the case that flow is a very, very controversial notion. And I, I, I think it's very clear, after having played with you for years, that I think that your... Your personal enjoyment of the game, and indeed, it might be better if your concept of flow broadened a slight bit. That's my observation. And I think I would, my enjoyment of the game needs to be subordinated to the notion that sometimes I hold up the flow because on rare occasions, I am that person who's doing that end of game calculation. And on rare occasions, I am, well, rare, okay. On occasions, I am that person doing that calculation. And on occasions, I am that person who does the one too many take back, uh, who, who really should just learn to live with what they've done. So I'm just going to fall back on what I usually say. Try to feel the table presence. Read the room. 
read the room, yep. even ask questions. Like, it, it, you know, is am, am I taking too long? Am, am, am I, you know... You're right. It's it's not going to hurt anyone's feelings. It's it's you know when you maybe you'll speed up a little bit more. Just say you know, do, is it okay if I take a little longer? Or am I yep. taking you know, am I holding the game up? Do you mind? Yep. And if so, just read the room. I think a good note to end on is a question that we have posed in the past, a question that's been posed to us in the past, which is how do you get people to play faster? And the answer is I know of no way. Shot callers. <laughs> well, with that. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. Please direct any lawsuits to our legal gibbons. If you'd like to get in touch with us, on the other hand, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. There's tons of great information on sowronggames.com. We recommend it highly. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thank you again for spending some time with us, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>